Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Paul Ormerod, the author of three best-selling books on economics, talks about what mainstream economists have to say about the turmoil in the financial world. I'm I'm Glynis Breakwell. I'm the vice chancellor of the university, and it's a delight to welcome you all here this evening. This is the second in a series of public lectures which the university is mounting. We decided to mount this new series of public lectures so that we could address the major social and technological debates of our times. As befits a university which is one of the top 20 research intensive institutions in Britain, Bath is concerned to see that universities engage with the grand challenges that face us all. There's none more pressing, I would contest, than the economic and financial problems that are facing us globally. Paul Ormerod, our speaker this evening, takes a controversial line when addressing these problems, and I am sure will engender considerable debate this evening. I think it's not unassociated with how full this room is. Um, that the debate will be entertaining. Paul, uh, who is um, the director of Volterra, um, a consultancy operation, has had a very significant track record in association with universities over the years. He read economics at Cambridge and took an MPhil from Oxford, so got both parts of the pair. Um, He has had uh, visiting associations with a number of different universities, including Manchester, and was a fellow of the Institute of of Advanced Study at the University of Durham, which showed the great good taste following that to award him an honorary doctorate. His main interests are in complex systems and social networks. He's published over the years, since 1994, three best-selling books on economics. The first, Death of Economics in 94, the second, Butterfly Economics in 98, and in 2005, Why Most Things Fail. His title tonight is Have Economists Gone Mad? Uh, thanks very much and uh, good evening. It's a great pleasure to be here, although I do feel with the economist sat here, I'm, I'm rather on show trial, but so we'll see, 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 how, it, see how it goes. Um, now, a great deal's been written um, about the role, if you like, of practical people, of policymakers uh, in the uh, financial crisis, whether it's bankers or regulators or politicians. But appropriately, given that uh, I'm in a distinguished university, I'm going to focus tonight on the role of ideas, and specifically of ideas in economic theory. Now, going back to Keynes, one of his uh, most well-known phrases refers specifically to uh, the power of ideas. In his great work in 1936, The General Theory of Employment, he wrote, and I'm quoting, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences, are usually the slave of some defunct economist. Uh, Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of years back. 
but I think in contrast to Keynes's view of the role of ideas, so Keynes decide, as, you know, said ideas are primary. They're, they're, they're the reason things ultimately happen. They're very important. But in contrast to his views of the role of the crisis in the 1930s, I think the current problems are not grounded in ideas which were advanced by academics years back. Uh, they've arisen from ideas which play a prominent role uh, in contemporary academic economics. And far from being defunct, these ideas became more and more important uh, in the decade or so leading up to the crash in 2008. And it's the ideas at the heart of modern macroeconomics, people are not um, economists, that's a study of the economy as a whole, uh, microeconomics is about how, how individuals behave, about how different people or firms or whatever, uh, and macroeconomics refers to how the economy as a, as a whole uh, is operating, output, unemployment, inflation, this sort of thing. But it's the ideas at the heart of modern macroeconomics which have provided the intellectual justification of the economic policies for the last 10 to 15 years. And it's these ideas which the crisis falsified. The dominant paradigm in macroeconomics over the past 30 years um, has been that of rational agents, and I'll mention this uh, in a minute, talk about it, uh, making optimal decisions. And by, by um, rationality, um, it's, a, it's a peculiar phrase to economists, we've got a very precise meaning with economics, essentially mean that when I say agents, I can't help myself, I'm trained as an economist, but I mean agents, I mean people. Uh, or you know, firms or decision makers. Think of decision makers. But I, will, I will use the phrase agent, but I just can't help it. Uh, uh, so decision makers, you know, gather when they're making a decision. You know, gather all relevant information um, to that uh, relevant that problem. Have a correct view um, of how that of how the world actually operates, and on that basis, given their own tastes and preferences, make the best possible decision. So it's a postulate about how individuals behave. Uh, and it's the dominant paradigm within both microeconomics and uh, macroeconomics. So in macroeconomic theory, the, the paradigm of the last 30 years has been rational agents making optimal decisions. Optimal is a word uh, very frequently used by economists. Under the, under the assumption they form their expectations about the future rationally. Uh, they have, as I say, uh, access in some way to the correct model of the economy, uh, and they're able to use this to make projections. Uh, their expectations are formed um, by gathering all information and forming a correct view, on average, um, uh, what's going to happen in the future. I'll be coming back to this later. So in short, we can say the rational agent using rational expectations, or RARE, uh, or A-R-E, uh, for short, now, I'm not going to talk about a detailed critique of uh, this particular view of the world. Uh, the vice chancellor is a psychologist, and it seems to me uh, virtually the whole discipline of psychology uh, stands uh, counterpoised to this particular view of how individuals take decisions. So there's a great deal to discuss about this. But the specific focus I want tonight is to talk about the way in which mainstream economics deals with risk and the way in which it deals with uncertainty. Uh, concepts which played a fundamental role uh, in the financial crisis of the autumn of 2008. And it's this, it's the way in which it deals with risk and uncertainty, uh, which is at the root of the problems, both the discipline of economics, and much more importantly for the economy itself and the financial crisis. Let me just step back and talk about a little bit of historical background about the concepts of risk and uncertainty and how we define them, 
uh, and how they've actually uh, been used in economics uh, in the past. So some of the very best-known names in economics made an important distinction between these concepts of risk and the concept of uncertainty. And the person who formalized the distinction was Frank Knight in Chicago, um, his key book on the topic being published in 1921. Now, Knight's much less well-known than two other names I'm about to mention. Uh, but he was of such stature that Milton Friedman described him as one of the most original and influential social scientists of the 20th century. And it's very interesting looking at uh, uh, Knight's work. Uh, his collected volumes came out again uh, a few years ago. I reviewed it for the Higher Education Supplement. And Knight did actually found the free market school of economics at Chicago. Uh, but his writings are much richer than this very, very fascinating insights. And you realize uh, the main limitations of this model is that he was clearly you know, a very extremely thoughtful and original thinker. Now, Knight essentially argued the concept of risk applies in circumstances where we know, or at least we have a very good idea, of the probability distribution of possible outcomes. But where our knowledge of this is imprecise, or even absent altogether, it's uncertainty, which is a relevant concept. So, for example, if we place money on a fair roulette table, that is risk. We know the exact probability of each of the various outcomes on which we are betting. For some reason, we know it's fair, and we know the probability then of getting a particular number or getting red or getting black or whatever. That's risk. We know the probability uh, outcomes. But uncertainty would arise, for example, if we bet, uh, but we didn't know, for example, how many numbers there were on the wheel or even whether the ball will be spun at all. We have no idea of the potential range of outcomes. We, we're completely in the dark about that. Uh, and that would be a, 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 a situation of uncertainty. Now, many practical situations may be closer to the uncertainty paradigm. Obviously, in reality, uh, when we're making decisions about the economy, uh, we don't have one uh, pure extreme or the other. It's a question of which, extra, which of the two uh, it, it, the world is closer to. And in practical situations, may be closer to the uncertainty paradigm than to that of risk. We may, for example, have too small a sample of events uh, to estimate a probability or much more importantly, more generally, uh, we might have inadequate knowledge about the causal mechanisms involved in any given situation. Now, Keynes certainly believed that uncertainty was the more important of the two. And he believed that this was the key reasons for the business cycle, for the booms and busts we observe in capitalist economies, the market-oriented economies of the West. He attached fundamental importance to uncertainty. So in the general theory he wrote, for example, I'm quoting now, the outstanding fact is the extreme precariousness of the basis of knowledge on which our estimates of prospective yield and investment have to be made. If we speak frankly, we have to admit that our basis of knowledge for estimating the yield 10 years hence of a railway, a copper mine, a textile factory, the goodwill of patent medicine, an Atlantic liner, a building in the city of London, uh, this amounts to little or sometimes to nothing, or even five years hence. End of quote there. So on a purely rational calculation, very few investments would ever be carried out. Very few new firms would be started. 
uh, the book I wrote um, uh, on why my most things fail was uh, inspired by some work I did uh, around about 2000, incredibly, the US Department of Defense looking at extinction patterns of firms, uh, which is very similar to extinction patterns of species in the biological record. Uh, but one thing that struck me was that um, uh, over 10% of all firms uh, fail every year, both in uh, America and, uh, and, and in Europe. So most, most such changes fail, and it's the irrational optimism of the investor, the entrepreneur, which enables them to happen. The belief that he or she has a better idea, a better concept, a better product, uh, which is bound to succeed. Now, I've mentioned Keynes, uh, and some people believe, in, in, in quite contrast, uh, Friedrich Hayek uh, is seen as a counterpoint to Keynes in, in many ways in, 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 in political economy. There are many similarities between their works. But Hayek went even further. Hayek was not uh, a, 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 a believer in rational, rationality at all. Um, he went even further than Keynes and believed that there were fundamentally inherent limits to knowledge which no amount of intellect could ever overcome. His 1974 Nobel lecture, for example, is entitled The Pretense of Knowledge. And on this view, inherent and inescapable uncertainty pervades the economy. So in many ways, and I'm, I'm uh, believed as a, a centre for uh, complex studies here at Bath, uh, Hayek is an intellectual precursor uh, of modern complex systems theory, writing in the 1930s, much of his work, uh, sold in the early 50s, the latest. Now, Hayek has suffered within economics, uh, more generally in political economy, uh, a form of guilt by association, uh, in that his work has been cited approvingly by rational expectations theorists in economics, uh, but his analysis of the business cycle is in many ways similar to that of Keynes, though uh, they did differ over policy matters. I mean, Keynes ultimately believed in uncertainty, but thought a few clever chaps from Eaton and Kings could solve all the problems if only they were allowed to run the economy. But Hayek didn't even have that, uh, that particular conceit. Um, he certainly thought that equilibrium analysis should be the foundations of business cycle theory. However, he believed it had to be extended enormously to be able to explain the persistent fluctuations in output that we uh, observe. He believed that firms and governments operate in such a complex environment that not only their expectations often prove wrong, but the crucial point was they're unable to learn sufficient from the past in order to make the same, avoid the same mistake in future. And this is in complete contrast to modern rational expectations theory, where agents uh, are believed if they make a mistake, they better learn from that and to adapt their model and to move to a correct model of the economy. Hayek certainly didn't believe that. Indeed, he believed the level of uncertainty, uh, and he seems to have some empirical backing for this, the level of uncertainty is so high, even the central bank uh, cannot learn to offset expectations by changes in monetary policy in order to smooth out the cycle uh, and restore equilibrium. Now, I believe that modern macroeconomic theory failed in its appreciation of both risk uh, and uncertainty. Let me just say uh, a few words um, about, you know, generally about rational expectations, rational agents, or rational agents, rational expectations. So the appropriation by economics of the word rational to describe behavior, individuals, firms, governments, uh, is really a great propaganda coup, because who, after all, would want to be thought irrational, or even have the temerity to suggest models in which agents behave irrationally? But as it happens, I've, I've noted some of the greatest thinkers in economics, such as Keynes and Hayek, didn't subscribe to this view of the world at all. But such heresies have long been purged from the canon of economics, 
And it's rare in the normal English sense of the word uh, to meet a young economist who's read any of the works of these two economists uh, in the original. And again, to reinforce the, the point I was making earlier, uh, it's my view that virtually the entire discipline of psychology, to say nothing of much of anthropology and sociology, suggests that behavior which approximates the rare assumptions is a limited special case. It's not always wrong, but it's a limited special case of how humans really do behave. Now, rational expectations about the future, there's, there's a subtle point here, a very subtle point. They don't require that predictions about the future are always correct. Uh, it's often widely misunderstood. In fact, any such prediction that's made may turn out to be incorrect in every single period, but still be rational. The requirement is not that it's correct in any single period, but on average, over a long period of time, expectations are correct. So agents are assumed to take into account all relevant information and to make predictions which on average are unbiased. So deviations from perfect foresight in any given period are an inherent feature of this behavioural postulate. So it's often widely misunderstood. People believe rational expectations mean that people have to be correct all the time. Certainly not. They can be wrong in every single period. But deviations, when they are wrong, can only be random. Because obviously, if there were any systematic pattern in your deviations, uh, the agent will be assumed to incorporate the pattern into the expectations and learn the correct model. So on average, over a long period, uh, expectations are correct. Well, at the moment's reflection, will make it apparent that this, this theory is very difficult to falsify uh, to somebody who really believes in its validity. Even the most dramatic failure to predict the future, such as the 2008 financial crisis, can be explained away as a random error. A rational expectations enthusiast can still continue to maintain the correctness of the theory by simply assuming that over some theoretically indeterminate period of time, on average, expectations prove accurate. And some of you may remember, uh, it's nearly about a year ago now, the Queen, for some reason, is opening a, a new building at London School of Economics. And uh, not, she's not a very, very great supporter of the Queen, but she's not noted for her intellect. But she nevertheless asked the head of the department, you know, why did you get it wrong? Why? And, the, you know, and the essential response from the mainstream economists, I'm being slightly flippant here, but this is in essence what it's, what it's saying, um, it was a random error uh, that they couldn't actually have seen. Nobody could have foreseen the, uh, the financial crisis. Now, an important part of the theory, I've already mentioned this, is that as part of the set of information being processed, the decision maker is in possession of the correct model of the economy. If you think about it, on the logic of the theory itself, if the model being used to make predictions were not correct, the forecast would exhibit some sort of bias, some systematic error, and they would then realise that it was wrong. Now, it seems to me it might reasonably be argued uh, that it's difficult to subscribe to the view that agents understand the correct model of the economy, given that economists themselves differ in their views as to how the economy operates. I'll be coming back to this later. But for example, as a practical example, in the autumn of 2008, in that very difficult time, many prominent American economists, including some Nobel Prize winners, vigorously opposed any form of bailout of the financial system, arguing that it was better to let banks fail. Others, including decision makers at the Federal Reserve and Treasury in America, uh, took a different view entirely. Now, interestingly, the response of the academic mainstream, and this mainly means... Uh, uh, you know, the American uh, macroeconomics dominates uh, the profession in this respect. Well, let's make a contribution. That's a dominant mainstream there. 
Their response has been to insist there have been strong moves towards convergence within the profession on, on opinions in macroeconomic theory. So this is not really a problem because anybody who's a true economist really believes the same thing. So by implication, anybody who takes a different view, and I'll be coming back to this shortly, is not, uh, is not part of this intellectual convergence, can't really be uh, a proper economist. But first of all, in this context, I now want to give an example, a real-life example of a model widely used in finance by both practitioners and policymakers, which has not only been shown to be wrong, but has been shown to be known to be wrong for some considerable time. And it's specifically wrong in the way in which risk is measured. This incorrect assessment of risk played an important role in the financial crisis. So in apparent complete contradiction to the rare assumptions that agents know the true model of the economy, a bad model was used at an absolutely critical sector, in this critical sector of the economy. I'm going to talk here about pricing of risk on financial markets. There's a concept called value at risk, VAR, if you uh, want to Google it. The value at risk of, of any portfolio of financial assets means what it says. It's a measure of the potential loss on a portfolio over a specific time horizon. It's been since, since the 1990s in widespread use in financial institutions and regulatory bodies. And a typical value at risk calculation will estimate the amount of money at risk over the next day with a probability of either 1% or 5%. It's a very seductive concept. Because within minutes of the close of trading in London, say, or New York, the chief executive and the finance director of a, of, a, of a financial institution can be given a number which purports to give the amount of money at risk on the company's portfolio the next day with a specified probability. The calculations essentially involve two steps, and the first is the core of the approach. So for an individual asset, like shares in Vodafone, say, or government bonds, the probability of the price the next day, or, or any other chosen period, changing from the current price by specified amounts is calculated. <coughs> the second step then allows for any cross-correlations between assets and the portfolios. So a collection of assets may well have uh, less risk than any individual assets. So stocks and bond prices, for example, tend to move in opposite directions. Not always, but they usually do. And uh, Harry Markowitz received a Nobel Prize in economics in 1990 uh, for his work in this area. And as it happens, there are serious problems with this uh, in the way in which the cross-correlations are calculated. Um, physicists who took an interest in, uh, taken great interest in uh, economics, a discipline now called econophysics, uh, demonstrated this beyond doubt uh, with a series of papers published in the late 1990s. But I'm focusing here on the way the probability of price change in individual assets is calculated in most value-at-risk systems. The process seems to be straightforward. There's an enormous amount of data on which to calibrate the probability distribution of price changes on most assets. We can easily get daily changes in Vodafone prices over the last 10 years, almost any period we want. We can gather huge amounts of data. In many economic situations, getting data is a problem. No problem at all on financial markets. So we can get the data. So it seems to be the same sort of problem as working out the probability, say, of shaking two sixes or two fives or whatever uh, with a couple of fair dice. It seems a straightforward calculation. Now, in practice, it's widely assumed that price changes follow the normal or Gaussian distribution. And indeed, for the most part, they do. When we examine the evidence and look at actual price changes, they seem to follow this well-known pattern. But there's a very subtle and profound difference. 
Obviously, chances of seeing a one-inch or 20-foot-tall person are almost literally zero, because human heights, you know, for each gender, are very well approximated across the entire distribution by the normal or Gaussian distribution. Uh, so chances of seeing the share price equivalent of these are definitely not zero. The chances are not high, but they really do um, happen. Now, in the jargon, this sort of pattern is known as fat tails. So the further we move away from the average, uh, the more we get into the tails of the distribution. In other words, the parts of the distribution where the number of times we see these values is very low. We have the bulk of the price changes, as it were, in the body of the distribution, uh, and they do very much look like a normal distribution. But with a normal distribution, this fades very, very quickly. When we move, we move certain distances away, we, we hardly ever see uh, observations which are too far away from the bulk of the distribution. Now, with fat tails, uh, it doesn't mean that these events are, are highly likely, but they are many, many, many times more likely uh, than under a Gaussian distribution. So it's a very subtle point. It may seem esoteric, but it's, a very hard, it's one of the things that are very hard for the financial crisis. Everything seemed just fine. Money rolled in. Until one day, a 20-foot-tall man appeared uh, in the value-at-risk systems. An underlying price changes by an amount which is effectively ruled out by the assumption of a Gaussian distribution. Almost all value-at-risk systems became worthless, as indeed some companies did when the 20-foot-tall man appeared. Now, this phenomenon of fat tails isn't just something we've now observed ex post. Um, it, it actually has been known since 1900 when somebody called Louis Bachelet presented his doctoral thesis in Paris. It, it's what did then languish in, in obscurity for decades, but in the final quarter of the 20th century, evidence of this phenomenon uh, began to pour in. Uh, the initial discoveries were by another French mathematician uh, based in America for much of his life, Mandelbrot, uh, 1963. During the 1990s, the stream became a flood as some of the world's most distinguished statistical physicists began to take an interest in this. Gene Stanley at Boston, uh, Mantegna at Palermo, Bouchot in Paris, Zhang in Fribourg. These and a host of their students and uh, fellow scholars examined the data on price changes in financial markets. And they found fat tails literally everywhere. Far from being unusual, the exception fat tails were the norm. And these were results established beyond doubt 10 years ago. Um, large numbers of top-quality academic papers were available on the internet. But despite this overwhelming scientific evidence, fat tails were largely ignored in the financial markets. The result was the potential for volatility and the potential for large changes in the prices of financial assets were systematically underestimated. So here we have a model, value at risk, used by the world's largest financial institutions, used by regulators, which wasn't just wrong, but had been demonstrated scientifically to be wrong. Uh, but even so, I suppose, a true de devotee of rational expectations might be tempted to argue that this wasn't a refutation of the theory, but evidence in its favour, uh, because we've now learned that the Gaussian assumption of distribution of prices um, is wrong. But anyway, uh, that's, that's something there. There was a model assessing risk uh, where the assumptions most of the time were correct, but at the crucial time, when you got big changes, were completely incorrect. Uh, and the probabilities, big changes really did happen, and bankrupt people uh, were, were grossly uh, underestimated. Now, the intellectual challenges posed by um, the core model of conventional economics dominated the subject for 100 years from 1870 to the early 1970s. And it's a, it's a major uh, intellectual jewel in the crown of economics. It was a very difficult problem to solve. This is the so-called general equilibrium problem. 
general because the theory purports to describe how equilibrium, supply equal to demand, can arise not just in one or two individual markets, uh, but generally across the economy as a whole in all markets. Um, not going into the details, but uh, no fewer than seven out of the first 11 winners of the Nobel Prize in Economics received it for their work on general equilibrium. It's fundamentally important to the discipline. But eventually, by the early 70s, the problem had finally been solved completely. There are now no more results to be solved in general equilibrium. Now, I say completely, it's important to realise a theory in this guise related to an economy with a fixed amount of resources, whether land, labour, energy, capital... And the theory essentially told us about the optimal, the most efficient allocation of a given set of resources. It was about a static and not a dynamic economy. And the major project in macroeconomics in the last 30 years has been to try to use equilibrium theory to explain the dynamic fluctuations in output which have been observed in the developed market-oriented economies ever since the uh, Industrial Revolution. Now, there are two aspects to this. First of all, the slow but steady growth in output over time, averaging around 2% ahead. But the second, and this is, relevant, this, is what, this is why we have recessions and booms, this is the persistent short-term fluctuations in output around this underlying slow growth. Um, we see recessions, we're living through one of these periods right now. A theory which is based upon equilibrium appears to have an inherent problem when confronted with data such as, I hope I can remember how to use this, in this particular chart. Here we, here we see um, uh, percentage changes in, in GDP, I mean, this is total output of the UK economy over the 20th century. And this is entirely typical um, of the developed economies. So here we see uh, there's a big recession after the First World War. Here's a recession in the 1930s. Uh, here's not surprisingly a boom during the Second World War. Uh, but it fluctuates and it never settles down. It never settles down. That's the key point to take away from this chart. There's an interesting chart. There's, an old, there's a whole course in, in economic history which could be taught on the basis of this. But uh, the key thing is that these fluctuations uh, never disappear. Now, attempting to understand why these fluctuations take place is a very difficult problem. If you were understood in the same way as they're building bridges, uh, we'd, we'd know how to do it, but we don't. The first major attempt in the 80s to use equilibrium analysis was something called real business cycle theory. And it'd be very influential... And its main authors got the Nobel Prize in 2004. Now, according to this theory, these fluctuations, the booms and busts of everyday parlance, are initiated by random shocks to the economy. Now, there are many problems with the theory, uh, not least of which is, what are these shocks? Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem of identification. But the most widely used shock in these models is of random changes in productivity. So in real business cycle theory, recessions arise... I'm not making this up, because the rational response of individuals to adverse product productivity shocks. Now, in a further illustration of the rather Orwellian use of words by uh, economics, real here means that recessions are caused by so-called real factors, such as productivity and rational behaviour, and real is juxtaposed with nominal, nominal factors being such obviously irrelevant things as money, credit and debt, uh, which do not feature uh, in the real business cycle models. Um, agents maximise utility over time, choosing between consumption and leisure. And they have two decisions to make in every period. How much of their time to spend at work producing output, income, and how much to take in leisure, that's the first decision. And then how much of this output to allocate between consumption to have now, and how much to invest for the future. But let's focus uh, on the first of these. Uh, many mainstream economists fail to be persuaded by this approach. So let's say a temporary reduction in productivity takes place. 
And this encourages people to work less now than in the future, because in the future they'll learn relatively more per hour than they do today. So they choose to work less now. Indeed, some may work less, sufficiently less, for it to seem as if they're unemployed. Uh, but whereas according to real business cycle, they're actually, they're actually rational agents maximising their expected lifetime utility. Now, Paul Krugman famously noted that this account of the world suggests that the Great Depression of the 30s, when nearly one in every four workers in America was unemployed, was essentially an extended voluntary holiday. <coughs> now, the latest attempt to explain business cycle fluctuation, which builds on this by equilibrium theory, is something called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, or DSG, uh, to use the mnemonic by which they're usually referred to. I feel it's a pity they weren't invented by somebody from, say, the Centre for Research in Applied Phrenology. But, so you have to. Uh, but these models, like, like rational business cycle, like real business cycle theory, are based upon the key microeconomic assumptions of orthodox theory. Rational utility by consumers, rational value maximisation by firms. And they try, they build on it by trying to actually incorporate some features of the real world. Just so purely, for example, real business cycle models, prices are very flexible and adjust rapidly to prevailing economic conditions. Uh, with the, the latest uh, version of the DSGE, uh, prices might be a bit more sticky and take time to adjust the new equilibrium models. Now, these models are very complicated and difficult to construct, but they've rapidly become very influential, not just in academic um, uh, economics, but in central banks. So, for example, the American Economic Association, that dominates world economics, launched in January 2009 a new journal with the title Macroeconomics. And it turns out that the academic profession believes it has reached a broad consensus. They now all have the correct model. The first issue carries an article uh, by one of the world's leading academic macroeconomists, Michael Woodford, entitled Convergence in Macroeconomics, Elements of the New Synthesis, in January 2009. The first and most important part of the new synthesis, it turns out, is, I'm quoting, it is now widely agreed that macroeconomic analysis should employ models with coherent intertemporal general equilibrium foundations. This was published in January 2009. Oliver Blanchard is a chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He's done very distinguished work over the years, but here's what he had to say in August 2008 in an MIT working party entitled The State of Macro. For a long while after the explosion of macroeconomics in the 70s, the field looked like a battlefield. Over time, largely because facts do not go away, a shared vision, both of fluctuations and of methodology, has emerged. The state of macroeconomic theory is good. The state of macro is good in August 2008. He went on, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models have become ubiquitous. Dozens of teams of researchers are involved in their construction. Nearly every central bank has one or wants to have one. Uh, they are used to evaluate policy rules, do conditional forecasting, or even sometimes to do actual forecasting. Now, to be fair to Blanchard, he expressed a few reservations about them, but he didn't challenge the fundamental idea. He concluded in August 2008, macroeconomics is going through a period of great progress. So when politicians proclaim the end to boom and bust, they had incredibly powerful intellectual authority behind them. Uh, ideas were important. The models of the major central banks, the models of the major financial uh, international institutions, the leading orthodox academic uh, economists, the leading economic journals, they really did believe uh, they had solved uh, the macro problems um, of uh, the Western world. 
Yet despite these intellectual advances, forecasters continue to make exactly the same mistakes which they used to make when I started off as a map, I did start as a macroeconomic modeler and forecaster at the National Institute way back uh, in the 1970s. And just out of um, interest, here's a, a chart from the Bank of England quarterly bulletin um, in uh, October last year about the revisions made to forecasts for um, output growth for 2009 during the course of 2008. And this is the thing called top consensus economics, taking the major forecasting bodies. Bit of a complicated chart, but so, so here, for example, on the, these are forecasts made in January. So here for the United States, people were saying for 2009 on average, they thought it would grow you know, two, three quarter percent. Uh, on this scale, the, the Asia-Pacific region um, is on this scale because they grow faster. But let's just think about the uh, euro and the UK. So uh, UK, uh, the average in January, people thought it was grow 2%. And we see, we now know, in fact, that in April, the economy was already in recession. That in this period, output was falling. And yet where people were continuing to forecast quite strong positive growth uh, for 2009, uh, up to, up to, right up to, uh, the, in fact, the, the catastrophic collapses in September 2008. Now, these are entirely typical. Um, uh, for example, in the major crisis in East Asia in the late 90s, um, the International Monetary Fund predicted a continuation of enormous growth rates. Um, for, so, for example, in, in October 2000, uh, 1998, uh, 1997, they predicted for uh, Thailand a growth of 3%, for Indonesia 6%, Malaysia 6%. Uh, yeah, actually, in 1998, uh, Thailand output fell 10%, it fell 7% in Malaysia, and 13% uh, in Indonesia. So forecasting crisis is very hard. So what went wrong? Now, here's an overview, but I want to try to capture the failure of economics uh, to understand risk and uncertainty in a single chart. This, again, is taken from the Bank of England's uh, Financial Stability Report. It's a complicated chart. Don't worry, it's actually quite a simple one. Um, here we have, it shows the percentage of assets held in liquid form by UK banks. Now, we like to have a lot of fun with different definitions. You know, we, we love to argue about it in different ways. So this is the amount of money, in a sense, assets banks have to hold if there's a, you know, so if somebody, if there's a crisis and says, okay, where, you know, pay me, pay me a billion pounds, have you got it? Is it money you can get on tap and give them a billion pounds? That's what we're talking about. Liquid assets, assets that can immediately or very rapidly be turned into cash to meet contingencies. You're suddenly presented with a huge bill that you didn't expect. That's what we're talking about. So it's dressed up in economics jargon. It's the Bank of England bulletin. So we see here how there's been, you know, a massive fall, um, whichever definition we use, uh, over the years, uh, here, even on the narrow definition, banks had to hold 10% of their assets in ways which could be accessed just like that. And we see how it's fallen to virtually zero. Um, and this is typical of the Western economies. So by the time of the crash, the financial sector uh, was holding virtually no liquid assets at all. Um, nothing, to, nothing contingent, uh, nothing it would call upon uh, in the event of um, having huge demands placed on it. Now, liquidity, this ability to get cash now, uh, was absolutely central to the financial crisis. Northern Rock, a precursor of the crisis, went under at the very start because he couldn't refinance its loans. At the very heart of the crisis, credit markets flows completely because banks simply didn't know whether the next institution was solvent or not. Where they had the cash to give, they couldn't even lend money overnight because he didn't know. I mean, the bank had nothing to pay it back with. 
Might have lots of assets, but it couldn't get its hands on them. Now, how could it be the authorities allowed the banks to run down liquid assets to such a low percentage? Now, I think there's some interesting questions here for political scientists and sociologists about the role of finance capital. Um, but from a purely economic perspective, I think there were two main reasons why such incredibly low liquid assets were permitted. First of all, the authorities deluded themselves that the massive amounts of loans and debt had been priced rationally and hence optimally. They believed that agents had used the correct model in setting these prices, and if loans and, and debt had been priced optimally, the logical implication was the interest payments receivable exactly covered the risks involved in the loans. So if an individual institution defaulted on a loan, sufficient provision by the optimal pricing of debt had been made to cover the loss arising from any such default. There was no need to tie capital up unnecessarily in liquid assets rather than making money by lending it uh, when it could be lent out at a profit. So across a portfolio of many such loans, a default of a single loan simply couldn't cause a problem. And this leads to a second point. In the brave new world of dynamic stochastic general equilibrium, the possibility of a systemic collapse, of a cascade of defaults across the system, was never envisaged at all. Now, modern complexity theory, and specifically network theory, tells us that an interconnected system, the same initial shock can, if we could replay history many times, lead to dramatically different outcomes. And the economics profession in particular has become very insular and hostile to scientific work outside its own field. Uh, just as the case of fat tails discussed above, uh, economists are largely ignorant of the large amount of work carried out on cascades in interconnected complex systems by a whole range of disciplines, such as control engineers, computer scientists, physicists, mathematicians. Most of the time, the system, whether it's a financial system or fashions or cultural trends amongst consumers, most of the time, shocks are contained and don't spread very far. But in principle, a shock of identical size can trigger a cascade of global proportions. And here we're really in the realm of uncertainty, finding it hard even to judge uh, the probability distribution of potential outcomes than we are in the world of, financial, of precise calculation of risk. Now, how was the world saved? In, there's no doubt, in the week of 15th of September, it took me personally some months to get hold of this, in the week of 15th of September, capitalism nearly ground to a halt. It was a terrifying week. It, but it was the American authorities who saved the world. And they did so not by the manipulation of elegant rational expectations, models, and theories, but by experiment and by relying on their knowledge of what had gone wrong in the Great Depression of the 1930s. You know, one in four Americans were out of work. Catastrophic collapses in output. Now, it's fortuitous that the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of America, Ben Bernanke, was a leading academic authority on the Great Depression. He knew that, above all, in a financial crisis, the banks had to be protected. Now, it may seem, indeed it is, monstrously unfair the bankers themselves have escaped penalties. But the abiding lesson of the 1930s is in a financial crisis, the banks have to be defended. Now, admitted that the authorities did try, we might say, the Hayekian experiment of allowing Lehman's to fail. But it very rapidly, and there's some funny stories connected with that, with Lehman partners watching their net worth fall from, a, because they were in the period when they weren't allowed to trade, they could see their net worth disappear from $100 million to zero on the screen. Uh, but it, it very rapidly became very evident that any repeat of this risked a total collapse of Western capitalism, and no monetary authority has seen fit to re repeat this experiment. Much of the publicity and controversy surrounded the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, 
which required political approval and so was played out in full life the democratic process in America. But in many ways, this was completely second order compared to the purely administrative actions of the American authorities. The American authorities. They nationalized the main mortgage companies, just like that. They didn't shilly shy for months about it, they did it. They effectively nationalized the massive insurance company AIG. So Manchester United should have Federal Reserve on their shelves. <laughs> they eliminated investment banks. They forced mergers over the weekend of giant retail banks. The, they called them in and said, right, you take over this one this weekend before the market's over. And they did. And they did something called, they guaranteed something called money market funds. Now, this latter in particular has attracted very little attention, but it was crucial. Money market funds hold very short-term assets, very short-term, and they're obliged to hold highly liquid, high-quality assets. And the funds are required to hold a dollar of assets for each dollar lent. But on the 16th of September, something called the Reserve Primary Fund, that was its name, nothing to do with the Federal Reserve, wrote off Lehman Brothers' stock and the value of its shares fell to under a dollar. This almost triggered a stupendous run on the banking system as a whole. If it, had, if it actually happened, an immediate consequence would have been that ATM machines would have been closed and you wouldn't have been able to get cash out. People I know in hedge funds phoning me up, I mean, it's a different world, saying, go around all the bank accounts you possibly have and take out £10,000 in cash now. Uh, which they were doing that because they thought, when this happened, they thought capitalism would halt. They wouldn't be able to get any cash at all. The banks would be, it would be frozen. It, it, it was that close from a complete catastrophe. Companies wouldn't have been able to roll over short-term debt, uh, and if they didn't have cash in hand, would have had to file for bankruptcy immediately. In short, the default of money fund, market funds itself could easily have triggered by itself a massive recession. But on the 16th, 19th of September, the US Treasury announced it would guarantee the holdings of any public money market fund which participated for a small fee uh, in the program. So the Americans saved the world. And the key point about all these actions is that the authorities paid absolutely no attention to academic macroeconomic theory of the past 30 years. Real business cycle, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, rational expectations, all the myriad of erudite papers on these may just as well have never been written. Instead, they acted. They acted imperfectly uh, in conditions of huge uncertainty, trying to draw on the lessons of the 30s and hoping the mistakes of that period could be avoided. It wasn't a grand plan, uh, nor did one ever exist. This was a process of people responding to events, operating on uncertainty, operating on the basis of imperfect knowledge, and trying to see what did and what did not seem to work. And so far, it seems to have worked. It looks at the time of writing that American output in 2009 will fall by 3 or 4% compared to 2008, but the economy is stabilizing. Very dangerous to place a weight on a single observation, but in the third quarter of 2009, American output appears to be growing at an annual rate of about 3%. Now, in contrast, between 1929 and 1930, the first year of the Great Depression, American output fell by 9%. And the cumulative drop 1929 to 30s was 27%. Now, we don't know. We've still got to live the future. Um, but it so far seems to have worked. We know so far this program worked in a catastrophic collapse in output averted. Now, to be fair to, I mentioned uh, Olivier Blanchard. To be fair, he wrote a mea culpa in another MIT working paper in January 2009. And he identifies four main reasons for the crisis. First, and I quote, 
Assets were created, sold, and bought, which appeared much less risky than they truly were. Exactly. He gives the example of subprime mortgages, but his strictures could be just as well applied to the more complicated world of derivatives, where the probability of very large price changes was grossly underestimated. Fat sales problem established beyond doubt by econophysics, effectively uh, ignored. Blanchard wonders why this happened. He quotes history. History that people don't do economic history anymore. History teaches us that benign history teaches that benign economic environments often lead to credit booms. And to the creation of marginal assets, he means you know, assets which are a bit dodgy, and the issuance of marginal loans. Borrowers and lenders look at recent historical distribution of returns and become more optimistic, indeed too optimistic, about future returns. So indeed, we're a world away here from rationality and dynamic stochastic general equilibrium. We're back in the world of Keynes and Hayek, where agents can make persistent mistakes, and even the central bank doesn't learn from the past. So Blanchard goes on to his second point. Securitization, that was you know, the, the, the financial wizardry that was going on, led to complex and hard-to-value assets on balance sheets of financial institutions. Now, the maths of pricing even the simplest derivative are, very, are hard enough, uh, but the truly exotic nature of many of the products which were created, it, it's priced by a formula from statistical physics, uh, meant that neither buyer nor the seller had a good approximation at all to the probability of the likely outcomes. In other words, they faced, when they created many of these derivatives, a world in which uncertainty dominated rather than risk. So they couldn't price them correctly. Third, quote, securitization and globalization led to increasing connectedness between financial institutions both within and across countries. Now, we have to be very careful in drawing conclusions about the degree of connectedness and the vulnerability of a system to a global cascade uh, following a shock, uh, because greater connectedness can, in principle, strengthen rather than weaken a system. But given the ludicrously low liquid asset ratios with which banks were operating, which I was talking about, uh, shown on the screen, if I'm still there, uh, it appears plausible this was a factor in the crisis. And finally, it's called leverage increased. Blanchard helpfully translates this into English. Financial institutions finance their portfolios with less and less capital, thus increasing the rate of return on that capital. What were the reasons behind it? Surely optimism and the underestimation of risk was again part of it. Seems to me further comment on that is superfluous. In this latest paper, latest paper Blanchard's effectively discarding the entire corpus of mainstream macroeconomic theory for the past 30 years. So a very brief conclusion. Modern macroeconomics ideas, with its basis in rational agents and rational expectations, bears a heavy burden of responsibility for the financial crisis. The discipline provided the intellectual underpinning for a world in which situations involving risk led it to be systematically underestimated, and in which situations of uncertainty were not recognised for what they were. And I believe it's now time to scrap once and for all this view of the world. Central banks should ditch these models. Funding agencies should no longer support this type of research. The scientific evidence provided by the experiment of the financial crisis should enable us to draw these conclusions. Will any of this happen? Uh, I'm really being asked to speculate now about a world in which uncertainty really does rule. I know at some point uh, the rational agent, rational expectation model will be abandoned, uh, but it's already been subjected to so many uh, falsifications that I'm hesitant to be too optimistic. 
So finally, am I going to answer the question in the title of the talk? Well, I do retain an element of perhaps not rationality, but self-preservation. I did get into a massive amount of trouble with a best-selling book, The Death of Economics, I wrote 15 years ago. The idea you might choose a title to actually sell. Uh, economists are trying to understand, supposed to understand markets. That's what we chose the title. Um, but I got in terrible trouble on that. So I've just set out the evidence. The last point is to say it's up to you uh, to draw your own conclusions. Thank you.